0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Sounds rather deep and meaningful. That was Jim. This is David Eastall, and this is The C86 Show. Always bring you the finest in indie pop, and much, much more. Now, I've been going through some archives and interviews that um, I've done recently, and this is one I had with Paul Draper the English singer-songwriter, also musician, record producer and formerly the frontman of the rock band Manson. So um, I spoke to Paul a few months ago to find out about life, love, poetry. This is the interview and this is the first part, after i have been babbling for several minutes, um, about his musical journey and those early years of being a teen and what was he listened to. Paul, tell us more.
1: Hi grew up with my first musical consciousness being the Sex Pistols. You know, that's the thir- first thing that blew me away when I was, you know, seven years old and uh, seeing God Save the Queen on the TV and the Sex Pistols being banned from number one and sailing down the Thames. And I had some older friends, like, around the estate where I lived. You know, we were, like, you know, punk Mark IIs, you know, with the Mohicans and their tartan trousers and, like, uh, half a toilet seat layered around the bum and you know you, you know they looked a bit like Vivian you know the young ones you know it's like yes. uh, um you know and so yeah and i you know I, I i can remember a friend of mine who's a couple of years older than me had a tape of uh nevermind the bollocks and um i would listen to that all the time so so yeah punk punk is a big thing for me but um in my house the big music that was in my house was uh you know, the music of the other members of my family had really. And then I discovered punk myself, you know, I wasn't given it. That was found by me and friends, but generally older friends who like, you know, but the, the music that was given to me through my family was basically from my dad was the Beatles, you know, and a lot of rock and roll records, um, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, a lot of Buddy Holly. Um, and, um, through that, I discovered soul music as well. James Brown, I love James Brown. You know, I suppose that got me into hip hop later on. And uh, I had two older sisters. Had one who was particularly into music. And the other thing was, like, she had uh, Pink Floyd records around the house, like Dark Side of the Moon, Piper the Gates of Dawns, and then some sort of Pete Gabriel stuff, the early Gabriel records. Yeah, and uh, Gary Newman, you know, and then you had yeah, them records in the house that everyone had, you know, Chewie the Bells and Walt, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. And, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's like, um, and then I think, you know, when I when I got a little bit older and I started discovering discor- discor- like Depeche Mode on TV and stuff like that, And I, you know, when you come 11, 12, my favorite artist growing up was Prince, you know, so he, he began that all time favourite artist
0: you know. Yes well it's interesting because I'm a little bit older than you but um, I, had a, a, my, my, I had an older brother who, who was into, he introduced me to that world of sort of prog rock which at the time when I was 11, 10, 11, 12 13 I thought was just fantastic so bizarrely I sort of have an amazing knowledge of things like um, Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harvest and then he threw in a bit of heavy metal as well so because I slightly, I don't know, I suppose I looked up to him as a bit of a role model, I sort of went to Along with yeah. it, so when you mentioned yeah, think, when when you yeah. mentioned um, Mike Oldfield, and and then there was the other album that everyone had, which was Pete Frampton comes live. It's like, you know, I think, oh my god, yeah. I know all that stuff so well. You know, it's just because I played it constantly for for months on end. You know, as you do when you're young. You know, it's quite interesting. Yeah, 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 so, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. You
1: would sit next to the record player. Yeah.
0: Yes, and, and um, digest a yeah, lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I
1: think my musical career was just a subconscious amalgamation of all. That stuff I was li- listening to, you know, a bit sort of beatle, which became the bit pop element of me. A bit, bit of Pink Floyd and uh, Peter Gabriel, which became the proggy bit of me, and a, and a little bit of Prince, which became the and um, Depeche Mode, just became the electronic you know, you know, pop side of me. I, I don't know, you know, I don't, yes. I don't know. just, a, just a bit of everything, you know, that you you absorb and you just become your own thing, don't
0: you? Because it's interesting, because I've done quite a few interviews with kind of those post-punk Liverpool bands and sort of realised there was that huge scene in Liverpool with things like Eric's and and then sort of people like uh, Big in Japan who were, you know, not even big in Liverpool. But they were kind of influential, if you know what I mean, because they had all those bands or members of bands who went on to great things like Holly Johnson and then... Um, yes, various other members. Yeah, and
1: Ian Brody and obviously the KLF and stuff like that. I mean, that was before my time. You know what I mean? Yes. But obviously, I'm I very, very aware of that whole scene in the Bunny Man and um, and that whole um, you know post punk Liverpool scene. I mean, it obviously spawned a lot of a lot of you know act, big big musical acts, out of that tiny little scene. And um, but that was before my time. You know, yes. know what I mean? I mean, I think when I first started going to watch gigs as a teenager. I can remember going over to Liverpool and watching the Boo Radleys in a really early incarnation when they were pretty heavy. Yes. Uh, and they had Steve Hewitt from Placebo on drums, you know what I mean? It was from, you know, Liverpool as well. So, And then, you know, I sort of know Steve Hewitt now because he lives around here. <laughs> <So> <laughs> well, it's there a... It is. Yeah it's I weird. Gonna... I've, I've I, you know I've known people in bands since I
0: was literally teenagers you know Yes well it's just but interesting cuz cause, cause, uh, cause last year Cherry Red Records brought out um <clears throat> I think that was the 5 CD box set of bands from that Liverpool kind of I suppose, post-punk and indie scene. And and again, you know, there was a lot of bands that, you know, I'd come across for various reasons because John Peel played them. And then there was a huge amount of others that I never came across at all, but still sounded incredible. So Liverpool was obviously an incredibly kind of um, buzzing place at that time. I mean, you know, looking from from where I was back in the you know, on the east side, you know, all we knew was kind of Kevin Keegan and John Toshak and then there was the stuff about the Beatles and it was only later with, you know, John Peel and, you know, and obviously he was from Liverpool as well that, you know, we sort of became much more aware of that indie scene and when you sort of discovered things like Peel and then the the, buying the NME, you thought, my God, it's you know, we only had the Farmer's Boys and and serious drinking here, so, you know we are slightly jealous of the Liverpool kind of musical, you know, history, really. Yeah, I mean, Manson
1: was born out of the Liverpool musical scene, but it was born out of a specific time of the Liverpool musical scene. I mean, probably the band out of the Liverpool scene that inspired me the absolute most was Dr. Fibes and the House of Wex Equations. And I thought, to this day, I think they were one of the finest live bands i ever seen. You know, they did a couple of albums, and uh, I think Howard the Singer ended up with some, um, you know, issues and stuff from the band... The band didn't continue, but um, you know um, they were probably the most influential band on me. I, I thought I thought they were uh, pretty, you know, pretty incredible. Really, but then they were on I think they were on Probe Records, but but you know they were like very early '90s, and um, when I, I you know I've gone through a few different incarnations of my band before it had become Manson. And by the time we were rehearsing in Liverpool in Crash Rehearsal Studio, which was like it's just shut down now, but it was like the epicenter of where all the bands went. The bands that were there and were rehearsing, and were the upcoming bands of the whole the latest scene were like Space, Cast, yeah, um, you know, and and Manson, you know, they were the, the you know we were the ones who spearheaded that, but that. Yes. Uh, that, that, that That new scene coming out in about, you know, 94, 94, something like that, 93, 94.
0: Well, it's interesting because just going back to what you said about Dr. Fives, I was thinking, I bet you're going to say Deaf School, but you didn't. So I thought, phew. Deaf School is one of those Liverpool bands that everyone seems to name check, you know, if they're very hip and happening. So I thought, you know. I've never got, I, managed, yeah. I never managed to track down a member of deaf school yet, but I'm, so I'm working on it. So good, because yeah. having done the, the this show for a long time and mostly the bands in the 80s, I noticed they have a, this fantastic five-year narrative of two years getting together, making a bit of a sound and then suddenly in those days and possibly in the 90s as well, you know, it was a John Peel play that gave people that next stage up because otherwise you're just playing in front of your kind of, you know, community and friends, family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to go and see you and John Peel gave them you know, most most artists the the opportunity to get phoned up from one of those kind of indie clubs that were happening around the country and say, do you want to come and play Norwich on a Monday night at the Wild Club? And then suddenly Bristol then Leeds, then, You know, Glasgow. So how did your kind of early years develop with Man- uh, Manson?
1: Well, you know, it's not that dissimilar. We were rehearsing away in our studio, and we thought, should we start booking gigs everywhere and, and that? And we just decided to cut through them soul-destroying playing gigs in front of one man and his dog in a basement in a warehouse in Liverpool and around, you know, the Wirral and Chester and Warrington, where we were all from. So we actually booked the cheapest 24-track studio we could find, which was in Acton in London. And we all drove down and slept in the car and we recorded four songs uh, in 24 hours. Um, which was Take It Easy Chicken, She Makes My Nose Bleed, which eventually became a top ten hit. Uh, Take It Easy was our first single. Uh, Naked Twister, which got us signed. Um, and I think Skin Up Pin which was our second single. I think it was like number one on the indie chart or something. And we just did them four songs and we took them back. And um, we could only, um, with the cheapest thing we could have done with it was have a seven-inch record printed print up a pressing plant that we sent it to we could only have the same track on both sides which would take it easy so we just got 500 of them printed up and we all chipped in and um, we literally put it in an envelope and sent it to John Peel and um <laughs> he um we listened to his show every night and sure enough he said um I said I said dear John you know I'm from Connorsquay in North Wales but was born in Liverpool and that and he said I'm going to play this record he goes because I'm from the Wirral and uh this bloke who sent it me he goes. I used to stand on um, the uh, the river at um, I can't remember where, it, where he said it was, but somewhere on the world. He goes. I used to look over at the massive uh, power station in Conners He goes. So I'm gonna play this record for you, so, for for uh, obscure my view. <laughs> and he played it. And he just played Take It Easy, and that that was it. It was literally the next. I don't know how anyone ever got my phone number, but the phone just exploded the next day. Yes. From record companies and get uh, record companies offers. And that was it. I remember going into uh, Radio 1 to do our first peel session and going in and shaking his hand. He's like, Oh, yeah, I know you lot. North Wales over there, Connors Key." He goes, Yeah, I'd park gate it was. He said, I'd stand having fish and chips at park gate, looking over it like it was a different world. <laughs> and I'm like, Well, you know, it's only like two miles away. <laughs> and he said, So when I saw your letter coming through and you said you were Connors Quay, I thought, Oh, you know, Poor you, so I'll give it a shot. Like
0: <laughs> that's amazing. I know because John Peel was this kind of, you know, and also the the enemy in a way. But John Peel, especially, was the gatekeeper. You know, I realised I didn't appreciate yeah. this at the time, but it was that kind of yeah, ability. We had no press.
1: We had we had no press. We'd never played a gig. Nothing. He just played it because I because he's where I moved out that. Liverpool to Connors Quay in North Wales. He used to look at my town from where he lived when he had his fish and chips. So he played it. Yes. That was my big break.
0: That was that was it, I know. What a man, what See, a history. And,
1: and then we got about three Peel sessions after that. He really loved us. You know, he really was good, really good to us.
0: Yes, God, I know. We miss him so much. But then, you know, because one thing I'd also sort of come across with um, most of the other bands I've interviewed, it's been this kind of like, they, they sort of have a kind of a bit of a musical moment, I suppose a kind of a, a zeitgeist, where they're kind of in the right place at the right time. But then you know often after that first album you know there's the tricky second album but also often the other thing that is kind of happening is kind of musical trends are are, are sort of changing and they're often thinking oh god we've kind of missed it so the indie bands you know who had that jingly jangly sound in a way you know, though there was a lot put into that category even though they weren't exactly but then the dance scene came along and that kind of just wiped them out and then the Seattle grunge scene came on and that sort of wiped the other lot out and then you know I think by then they'd given up so then Brit Pop came along and I think most most looked and thought, God, if only we'd been still on the scene, we could have been part of that. But obviously they weren't. So, but you must have felt that you you'd sort of timed yourself. You know, the you know obviously you don't plan this when you're young, do you? But you know, your timing was pretty amazing, really, wasn't it? Because guitar bands were definitely happening.
1: Well I mean I you know, I've been playing the band since I was eleven, so it didn't seem like lucky time to me. It was like it just been you know, regardless whether we would have got signed or not, I was gonna do music, you know, that was my entire life. So we'd um uh so I think my first line it was guitar bass and drums and then I think the Bass player dropped out, and then so we got a keyboard player in, and so we had a lot of drum samples in it, and then he dropped out. So by the time Manson was put together, it was a sort of a hybrid of them scenes that had gone before. You know what I mean? It, we we had we had all the drum loops all on our first album, and we were sort of out of time with, we were out of sync with Britpop, but we had a, a couple of good catchy songs, which was the which is why we got signed up. You know, we had our own little original take on thing, which was a bit proggy, a bit um, you know, a bit long, a bit segways, bit of drum loops, a bit of dancey elements. So you know, and um, you know, we did like little concept albums. So we had our own little corner of it. Yes, um, and, and I... that's what people saw in it. So we managed to, you know, get get the, the first two albums to become successful. I mean, we we reissued. Attack of the Grey Lantern a few months ago, it went back to number 28 in the top 40 and number two in the vinyl chart and six is being reissued in March and that's gonna do the same, you know, it's gonna rechart probab probably higher. <laughs> you know, these records are remembered, you know, a lot. Like put it this way, a lot more than the band. <laughs> but the records are regarded well, you know what I mean? But you, I don't think we're fully in that bit pop scene, but we we you know we, we you know I think when history looks back all of us will be in it from the you know, the Verve Radio Ed, you know, the Stone Roses, whatever. You know not just blur pulp and oasis, you know, but um, yes, yeah, we had our own little thing, we had our own little thing that was bubbling away for a long time, and I think the the fashion just changed, and we were there, yeah, you know it was absolutely was a zeitgeist moment, um but you know it's it's more of a case of like knocking enough doors and one will eventually open, you know we um we, we sort of flipped every anyone who makes it flukes it, but it was you know one of them meant to be moments and But we felt, and I still do, that, you know, we've been, uh, you know, we put a lot of our lives into that, you know. I had a residency with my band playing in a pub from when I was 16. I'd play every Friday and we'd play and play. And we'd go to London down in a van and we'd play and we'd play around Liverpool and we'd play around the Northwest, you know. And eventually we got signed, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, it wasn't just a blip.
0: Yes, well that's interesting because I'm always, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, huge fanboy of music and I love my rock documentaries and I suppose just recently I sort of watched one on the Beatles and then one on the Rolling Stones and one on Twisted Sister, who I don't even like, but you know, it's a rock documentary so I signed <laughs> up and, and actually they spent years just touring and nobody actually wanted to you know sign them because they just didn't like them at all, even though they were selling out to 10... ten 10,000 arenas and they tore their yeah. ass off. But the thing what really gets me or what, what I found interesting with those kind of stories... And, uh, and this is the same with a lot of bands, you know, including David Bowie, especially in his sixties period. Was that actually people toured an awful lot and played a lot? So I'm not that surprised that they knew, you know, they knew how to play their instruments and they knew how to connect to an audience. And it did help rather than trying to play one gig and then sort of suddenly making it big and not quite knowing how to relate to an, a crowd, you know. So when you look at a lot of those kind of artists, you look at the, you look at the years that they weren't making it and they they hadn't got a record deal and they were just kind of playing constantly something like the Beatles in Hamburg yeah. or, the, or the Stones or David oh, yeah, Bowie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you do have to kind of put, you know, it's that Malcolm Gladwell, isn't it? You have to put the hours in to, to learn it. And, no, and, yeah, it, and it was interesting because, yeah, I, I,
1: you know, I, I played 100 gigs before I you know, signed a record deal, but I still wouldn't say I was a great front man. You learn more when you're thrown into that cauldron, like make it or, you know, sink or swim. And then you learn the rules, of the stagecraft, you know what I mean? Like Bowie wasn't that great when he started out, but, you know, he'd learned enough where he could step up and take them, you know, Frank Sinatra. You know, moves and the Elvis moves, and 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 becomes Ziggy Stardust. You know what I mean? But you, know, you can't just go from zero to that. You, just, you have to, you know, it is the ten thousand hour rule. No, no doubt about it.
0: Yes, and um, and the one thing that you you sort of did, which is probably more than quite a lot of bands, you, you managed to sort of get quite get, get through quite a few albums before things started to sort of kind of fall apart. With with each of those kind of releases, because in two thousand you had, uh, was it Little n- n- Kicks? Nick Hicks, that was that that was that particular. You know, you you're sort of going into a new decade. What was the kind of kind of narrative and the energy like of the band at that time?
1: Ah, oh, just like you know, just uh, all hated each other, just business. Um, but that it's, it's weird. It's weird because that was you know that was a made You know, we'd done the first two albums. People couldn't see what we were at the time. But retrospectively now, they look back and they wish. They, everyone thinks that they just left us alone to make our wacky records, but they wanted a big pop record, so they got what they wanted. I was sacked as the producer. They got Little Kids, but for the band, that we had our biggest ever hit off that album. I can only disappoint you. So you know, the band was was still, you know, we were still selling out all our concerts. It's not like it, it, we dipped or anything. We we're still on the radio, and then um, basically the guys sacked me. They 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 just made the move too soon. They wanted to get their own band together. Um, but the record company wanted us to make another Manson album. So we went in and we did like, we did an album, and we, but we didn't mix it. And we didn't finish it. And like some demos have come out and all like that. But now that Manson's sort of growing in stature, if you like, as, as, as a classic band from that era, that they, uh, I'm actually, one of my projects is going to be to finish off that fourth Manson album and, and uh, you know, re- release it finally, you know. So, um So, yeah, I I guess in the end we'll have done four albums. We did 14 EPs as well and 60-odd B-sides. So there's over 100 original Manson songs out there, you know, in the... uh uh, you know, whether you listen on Spotify or whether you buy the, the rele- re-release uh, programmes all going on vinyl and they're very sought after, you
0: know. Yes, well, quite, because I did an interview with a member of um, It's it's Immaterial and he was saying that they've kind of still sort of working through a lot of their sort of, you know, early recordings and thinking, you know, actually they'd just like to get them sorted out. And, and part of how he was talking about it was, Kind of unfinished business. I think it just felt like there needed to be a kind of a, a completion or closure or some sort of way of being able to to deal with that kind of period. Do you do you sort of have a similar feeling as you're sort of reissuing these albums and and thinking of re you know releasing the fourth album?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's definitely an unfinished, business I wasn't it at the end. You know, it just half oh, finished, but now now I'll finish it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't only work on that. That would my soul would rot doing that. But I'm a solo artist now, so I've uh, you know I'm signed to Casquette Records. I put my first solo album out about a year ago, which went in the top 20 in the UK. Um, and I'm you know my gigs are like up to 1500, 2000 now, so they're not far off what Manson was doing. And so I have a whole solo career. You know I've just toured France, toured the United States. I'm going to, to tour China and Japan. I'm going to play in Belgium. Next month, it's like I have a big career, a, a big solo career to play into all those fan, people who are fans of Manson, you know what I mean? Yes. So as, as a side issue of my solo career, we reissue Manson records, you know, that the fans want. I ask them, I go online, they have big fan clubs on Facebook and stuff like this. And what do they want? And they want, they want this on vinyl. You know, they want these B-sides re-released. They want this. They want a box set of all the B-sides. They want the seven inches. You know, we ask them what they want. And then um, my record label, you know, will will reissue them in you know small quantities so people can get what they want. Um, but it's only a side issue to my solo yes. career. But you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusions. I'm not a pop star anymore. You know, I'm a, you know, a, I'm just a, I just think of myself as a jobbing musician. But people say, oh, you're a real cool act. You know what I mean? You've got this like crazed fan base, and you go over, go all around the world playing, and and um, you know, it's uh, but you know, I'm not on T V or anything like that, but but I love it, you know what I mean? I mean I um, it took a lot of years to adjust my head of coming out of Manson, which was essentially a pop group, you know what I mean? We were on Top of the Pops every week in C D UK and like, you know, ask you know, answer who's your favourite cheese and in um smash it and so I ate it all I literally couldn't stand it, you know, it made me depressed. But now I can just do what I want on my own terms, and I just want to get out on the road. I'm working on my second solo album now, which will be out this year. The six albums being reissued, you can pre-order it now for March. I will be touring all over the place. You know, people can join my mailing list. The whole Manson thing and the Me thing is merged into one, and it, you know, it's still alive. But it's social media and stuff like that. You, you know, it's like it's it's um, you know, I'm, I I don't feel like I'm a nostalgia. A thing or a curator of something for the past. The whole thing still lives, you know. Just yes. lives in its own bubble.
0: What well, is interesting you know,
1: outside of mainstream media, you
0: know, because two artists that I've always been obsessed with and unfortunately died almost at near the same time was Lemmy from Motorhead and David Bowie, and and sort of been fascinated with their career because I, I sort of didn't, you know. Because of most artists, and, and fair enough, you know, my God, I've never been in a band. But, you know, they do have that kind of five years of being in a band. Obviously, they practiced a lot before that. And then they just wanted to get, a, you know, a normal life and, and a day job, basically, and just almost forget about the music. So it's impressive that, you know, you're one of the few people who've continued on in the musical kind of narrative rather than sort of wanting just to, to retire from it. So you do obviously have something that um, is a bit more than just most people who've kind of felt a bit damaged or a bit fed up with the whole sort of industry. So you you must feel quite kind of resilient and pleased that you've managed to reinvent yourself. Because when you look at Bowie, you know, and and as we all do, you know, especially when he died, it, it was that kind of thing of looking at his kind of 70s work and thinking, my God, you brought an album out a year, you relocated, you did different different musical styles and then you went through the 80s, 90s, et cetera. So do you, do you also sort of have that kind of creative kind of, um, kind of enthusiasm and excitement to experiment?
1: um Well, yeah, I mean, I started doing music when I was like 11. You know, I got a Casio VL tone and a karaoke machine and started making little recordings on the owner. And by the time I was 14, 15, I had a four track recorder, a, a reverb, you know, a, a Casio CZ 101 guitar, a Squire telecast and I was making records. I mean, that's why I produced the Manson Records. And uh, and I produced other records for the Anchor and produced skin solo stuff out of Skunk and Answer, you know. So when Manson ended, I just ca- I just carried on. I had my own studio and acting, and I just carried on working behind the scenes as a writer and a producer. Um, I toyed around with a solo album for a while, but it didn't feel like the time. And, you know, it was all like the White Stripes and all like that, and all the copyist bands like the Kooks and all like that. And I just, I, you know, but then eventually... Manson just became hip again so I thought oh, I'll do my solo album now but I've, I've had one long I was signed in 1995 so I've had one long continuous career in music where sure I'll have the odd week where I'll just collapsed, like just exhausted from it and don't an hour or go on holiday or something but I, I, I continuously work on music so in, originally in Manson then as a writer producer behind the scenes but the the pressure on me to do a solo album has become so vast I I couldn't really um, give my energies to this, this uh, this album I produced for an artist called the Anchoress, which won best um, album at the uh, best new album at the Prague awards and was nominated for the Welsh music prize. And I I couldn't produce the second one because I literally financially, you know, for like logistically, I had to do this solo album. uh, So I did it and it was a huge success. I didn't even expect it to go in the top 20 or anything, but it did. So we had to put on like a big tour and, and now they sign me up for a second one. So I've sort, you know, I've, I've life's sort, of, my career sort of taken me. I, I haven't had much control on it, but I've kept going. You know what I mean? I'm something <laughs> Paul McCartney expected him to be a solo artist when he was 70. You know what I mean? He probably just thought he'd be, you know, retired or still in the Beatles or something. You don't really have a power; it just takes you somewhere. But now I've, 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 I've never ever stopped music. I, I I'm still, uh, you know, if anyone listening to your show just look at my Facebook page or Google me and you, know, you don't even have to buy people's records anyway. you just check them out on YouTube and I've got my own YouTube channel and check out all my solo stuff the production work I've done the Manson stuff I did and I've got I, I, you know I, I have no intention of retiring or anything I just work in my own bubble and luckily I have big enough fan base that I you know I can, you know, make a living out of it. I view myself as a job and musician.
0: Yes, which is amazing. And obviously, you know, these things happen in life. And I had one of those moments um, about three years ago where you had the sort of dreaded, oh, by the way, we've got results back on the health front and it's not looking good. And in 2006, you also had a, a sort of um, one of those diagnoses of cancer as well. That must have been an amazing shock for your kind of like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next?
1: Well, that was in two, uh, thousand three. I had like it was like a form of skin cancer. I had a bonoid malignancy on my finger, which was uh, you know wasn't very nice. But what it meant was I, I literally couldn't play the guitar. That's one of the big reasons Manson left. It was a very stressful situation recording the fourth album, and um, no one was getting on. And uh, my onc- oncologist said to me, you know, you can't be in any position to stress, or this will spread through your body. So I just uh, so I just left. You know, but luckily, you know, um, I went. You know, I've gone back for regular checkups, and it, it's never spread. Um, and um, you know, so I've, I've got away with it really. I was, you know, lucky. But it didn't affect me in any way. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't smoke or anything like that. You know, I have a healthy life. You know, but luckily it's never come back. And I just view it as something that was, you know, I think I was probably just under an immense amount of stress after the uh, the, the other three members of Manson sacked me, and it probably just you know, I think probably, you know, I mean, you know, as an oncologist would tell you, it's an inexact science, you know. No one knows what causes cancer, but I think with me it's probably extreme stress.
0: Yes, I know. It's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Having those kind of, I don't know, eight monthly checkups with a CAT scan and an MRI scan occasionally, thinking, mm, you know. The- well, I have radiotherapy, you know what I mean? I,
1: had, I, had, I, had, uh, I can't remember how many now, like 10 courses of radiotherapy, and you know, sort of thing out. But um, I mean, I, I was a bit of a mess for a while, I have to say. Yes. But um yeah, I I but I, I can still use my finger. It's a bit messy, but I can still use it, you know, so I can still play the guitar. They were gonna cut it off at one point but like, you know, I <laughs> <Yeah>. said <laughs> "It's like i you know, I'll uh, you know, that's my uh I can't play the guitar without that finger, so they um yeah, you know, they they treated me pretty well. It's
0: got away with it. Yeehaw The National Health Service—that's what we say. What would you say to and and your 18-year-old self, or somebody who's starting out? Because obviously, you've had an an amazing kind of—you've packed a lot in on your musical career without sort of any breaks, and you've you've probably ticked off all the things that one could could almost tick off with being in in that kind of industry.
1: Uh. To my 18-year-olds, I mean, you're completely deluded when you're 18, you know what I mean? I mean, I can't, you know, you make so many mistakes going along and stuff and, you you know, you turn a different corner and you could have been this or you could have done that or maybe you could have been, a, I, I, I don't know. Just never give up. Just do, just do your own thing and never give up. Just, everyone's going to laugh at you and think you're rubbish and talk about you doing that, but just keep going and never give up, you know. So I just never gave up, that was all. And I've still never gave up, and I'm still going.
0: Yes. You know, as
1: you say, most people, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Most people just disappear and go and get a job or something. But, I, you know, I still work as a professional musician. I mean, I, you know, I'm playing Shepherds Bush Empire, at, you know, at, uh, in November. You know, so, um, you know, I'm doing, you know, I, I tour, you know, all over. I tour, I make records. I, do. I don't know. I built up a big enough fan base in Manson that I... You know, I don't need, I don't, I, you know, I get played on Radio 6 and stuff like that. You know, I get bit of XFM, get the radio played stuff. Um, you know, do interviews with Mojo or Record Collector and that, you know what I mean? But I, I am definitely an underground artist, you know, there's no question about that. But yes. I sort of quite like it in a way.
0: Well, at least... when you're a
1: pop artist, you, see, you get slagged off all the time. Like, you know, but it's like when you're an underground artist, everyone just ignores you unless they like you. <laughs> and I let them just do it on their own terms.
0: Well, I think it's quite a step, isn't it? when you look at bands who make it and they are the sort of the hot flavor of the month, and when you get a bit older, you realize god they all everyone's going to turn on you with the press and everybody, and it's not going to be nice and then it's like being able to make that next step you know and I suppose it's like you know people like Bowie it didn't really it's like well i'm not that bothered really because i i've well, well
1: that's not I don't think that's true I mean I think he ended up as a you know a cocaine addict in in uh you know, it was about seven and a half stone, like, you know, running away to Switzerland to hide from every other thing. It took massive, massive toll on him. But what he did is he was clever enough to go and regroup. Yes. You know, when, when the whole thing hit him, you know. Um, no one gets through it unscathed, I'm telling you. It's like, you know, I've been through the mill. Everyone goes through the mill if you want to stay in it. But it depends how much you want to do it, you know what I mean? It's desire, it's to do with... Um, I don't know. It's comes from a dark place. I don't know, you know, it's, I'd have to sit with a psychiatrist to work out what it's all about. But, <laughs> you know, it's like if someone come to me and said, um, you know, I'm a musician. Um, you know, can you give me any advice on being in the music industry? I'd say to them, well, don't go to the music industry if you want to be a musician. Mate. Just go and get a normal job and then just do music for fun because the music industry, I don't even, are there any musicians even in like the top 40 anymore? Or are they just singers, are they? They would like be out on computers and stuff.
0: I guess so. I have no idea. I'm sort of I'm so out of well, touch. That's really with it.
1: separated. I mean, I've just told to Stephen Wilson, who's like, I mean, they are real musicians, and and uh, is the musicians he plays are phenomenal. You know, so my musicians, I play with my band, are really great musicians. So I just, uh, I just think rock and musicians. That is like quite an underground world there You know, compared to like, you know, someone like Drake, who's just singing over an eight or eight drum machine, rehashing the same old crap about gangsters trying to kill him, and and you know how much is prices on his head and sipping on his gin and juice and that. But actually, he's just a stage school kid from the Disney Channel, you know what I mean? It's just drivel, just brainwash people.
0: Yes. And the one thing that... as a fan, one never really wants a band to reform, but, I mean, this is always a bit of a strange one, because, like, with, you know, I was a huge Smiths fan, but you'd hope that the members might like each other or at least once a year get together and have a, you know, cup of tea and have a chat, but obviously that doesn't happen with the Smiths. But, you know, how, what's your relationship like with the members of Manson?
1: Same as the Smiths.
0: Yes, that's fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, so, yes. You you know, in the words of um, Fleetwood Mac, you've all gone your own way, haven't you?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, i I just say, like, there's more chance of the Beatles getting together than Manson. That's with the original four members, so that's never going to happen, you know what I mean? And if it did, I think people would be, like, stunned. We'd probably sell out, like, the O2 or something. People would be so stunned that we'd even get on a stage together. But, no, nah, it's never going to happen. We weren't mates, really. We are part of, the, like, that Northwest music scene. And we got the band together and um, they decided pretty early on they wanted a different singer. So I just sort of cracked on doing it myself and, and they sacked me in the end. So, you know, um, so I, I, I went into producing, writing and producing and doing solo stuff.
0: Yes. Well, that's a wise choice, actually. God. Yeah. So when, you know, because the other thing, you know, people get tripped up with admin. Did you manage to sort of navigate publishing and, and sort of ownership of music? OK. Or was that something else? Uh, that- it's just. just
1: don't even go there that's why all bands split up we call it musical differences but you know it's just a huge you know minefield
0: yes i know well i think most people didn't realize what what anything meant and then they sort of then years later go well, where's all the money and you think well i don't know actually no one no no one ever knows this do they i, I once did an interview oh with some, you,
1: some people know yeah but just no one tells each other right have you seen the UB40 documentary?
0: Yes, I did.
1: Yeah, that's well, good. Where Ali Campbell goes into his accountant and goes, Where's all my money? And he just shrugs his shoulders. <laughs> 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 oh, well, there's not too dim- dissimilar to Manson, but I'm not going into any details. But you know, yes, but well, we did all right. You know, well, no, did we do all right? I think some did all right. Some did all right of it, definitely. You know what I mean? I'm for. Uh, you know, I've got a roof over my head and I'm making music and I'm, I'm just cracking on, you know. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in music to make money. If I want to make money, I've had offers to go and do other things that are a lot more lucrative. I'm in music, so I'd be a musician every day.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. Look, Paul... Thank you ever so much for giving me your time. That is, you know, I've got quite a bit there, so that's fantastic. And, cool. And I'll tell, I think it's Keith, wasn't it, who I got this through uh, when I put the, cool. the piece out. But I hope it goes really well. It sounds fantastic, actually. You, you managed to navigate and swerve and, and um, survive, which is great. And um,
1: <laughs> I, Do you know what? I don't even know I've done it myself, but somehow I'm still here. I don't, I, I literally cannot tell you. It's the biggest, you know, cesspit of. Lying psychopaths you've ever met in your life, but I've done it for now. I'm still going. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Well, I did. I did an interview with a member who in a band called the Janitors, who were quite I don't know, quite big but small in the 80s, and he he had a great quote from Hunter S. Thompson about sort of oh, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the sharks and you know sleazy people and um, you know, and there's a yeah
1: and a dark side and well. there's a
0: dark side. I can't quite remember, but he knew it off by heart. I think he'd probably been repeating yeah. it for the last 30 years cause yeah,
1: yeah. You get you know what you get used to that. You get you when you get to my age in music, you just. <laughs> You, you, you've seen it all you know what I mean I just, I just laugh at it. <laughs> you can see him in my life I don't have I'm like I'm, I don't have anything to do with anyone in the music industry I just communicate with everyone in the music industry my manager and then my band and that's it and everyone else I just I I I, 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 I don't partake in any of it I don't want to know any of them or any of it I just you know live out near the countryside and just, I'm just like I'm literally going to the studio now I, I, I go every day to the studio I only do five things I go to the studio, I write, um, well, I go to the studio to record, I write, um, I'm rehearsing with the band, I'm doing like promotion like this, or I'm touring, and when I'm not doing that, I'm probably in bed, <laughs> and, uh, and, I don't, and I wouldn't have it any other way, you know.
0: Yes, you, yes, well, it sounds fantastic, it's almost, you're almost in control there, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I, wouldn't,
1: <laughs> I don't know how I got here, but I'm just rolling with it.
0: Excellent. Well, it's good. Anyway, you've, you know, you've survived and smiling, so that's good. Walking and talking, as just I say. Just about. Just yeah. about. Anyway, well, like, have about. a great day. I hope the sun's shining there. It's, it's not bad. It's yeah. not bad. I hope it's, it's good bad. in Norwich. Yes, it's lovely here.